Thanks for tuning in to the Three Strands podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. Hey, if you want to follow along in your Bible today or on a Bible app, we're going to be in James chapter 4 the whole day, the whole morning. And uh, you can turn there now if you want. And um, we're in this series called Gym Class, studying through the book of James. I want you to know I'm thankful for those of you who have heard God's word the last several weeks and gone out of here and put it into practice and shared those things with us. And uh, I'm glad it's making a difference in your life. And those of you who are digging deep into the meat of the word and kind of studying on a next level, trying to understand what God's saying, trying to be on the lookout for and make connections in the scriptures, uh, what God is trying to communicate to us. Amen. Amen. Somebody was excited about that. So, but, um, so yeah, this study is all about how to work out our faith, how to exercise, grow up, strengthen, get more mature in the faith. James is writing to Christians, not to non-Christians, not to atheists. He's writing to Christians who are scattered around the world at that time, probably in large part due to persecution. And so they're scattered everywhere. And James is writing them this first um, book or first written account or first written letter that we call the New Testament today. Um, So it's not in the first order in your Bible, but it's the first one written. And so you have to imagine they didn't have any of this advice yet. All they had was the Old Testament. And now there's this new thing that had happened, this um, guy that had showed up, Jesus, and he, they say he lived this perfect life and he died in our place and that he rose from the dead to defeat the power of death and sin. And this message got spread around the known uh, world at that time. And so James is the pastor, one of the pastors of the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing this letter to all these Christians around the world being like, hey, let me give you some wisdom, some advice for how to live out this Christian experience and get the most out of it. It's the most like um, an Old Testament book that we have in the New Testament. In fact, it's written a lot like the book of Proverbs where you get a lot of these like wise sayings and wise statements for life. And it's super practical. And we've covered a lot of different areas already. How to get wisdom if you lack it. How to deal with difficult situations in your life or how to overcome temptations. How to control your tongue or how important it is to control your tongue. And, uh, and just this overriding theme of your faith ought to match your actions. If you say you're one thing on the inside, it ought to be evidenced by the way you live on the outside, that there should be a congruency between what you say you believe and what you practice. You should practice what you preach, right? You should not be a hypocrite, but live out the things you say are true. And that's a hard thing. And so along the way, he kind of offers these uh, pieces of advice too, where he says we all make mistakes and God's grace is available to all of us. And he gives his grace to us abundantly and liberally, uh, graciously to us. So that's what we've been covering so far. In week one, we talked about how do you get through what feels ungetthroughable. And I shared with you guys from James chapter one, what James was saying is that obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, no matter how difficult the trial, no matter how intense the temptation is. That was week one. Week two, um, he dove into this whole idea of the way you live ought to match Uh, what you say you believe. And so he said, your faith will drive us to live like Jesus lived. And if it doesn't, then it's not faith, it's fake. He doubled down on that in week three. And we shared uh, kind of this idea that there's a faith that works and a faith that's completely worthless. And that was scary for me when I got to that part because uh, 
it, it was where it, it kind of rang true for me or, or kind of hit home where it's like, he's not talking about Christians versus non-Christians or, or those who have faith versus those who don't even believe there is a God. He's saying there's a faith that's living and saves and is worth something. And then there's another kind of faith that's dead faith that doesn't produce anything good, that, that is worthless faith. And that's scary because he's talking to the people like us, people that would sit in a church on a Sunday. And he's like, there's a person that would sit here and, and have a faith and say the right things and maybe even do some of the right things, but man, their faith would be worthless. It would be this faith that, that, that isn't living, isn't alive on the inside, it's just dead faith. And then if you were here last, last week, he kind of got back to our words. He said, you can do all the right things and you can even have all the right kind of beliefs, but man, the things you say ought to match the labels you wear. And so that was kind of the big idea last week that the words we speak ought to match the titles we wear. And if we're going to say we're a Christian, if we're going to say we're a follower of Jesus, if we're going to say we're headed for eternal life in heaven, then the words we speak ought to be words of life not words of death. And, and sometimes it's like, why would somebody want the faith you say you have? You look like death all the time. It's like they've never even seen you crack a smile. They've never heard you say one encouraging positive thing about the Lord. Like, why would anybody be attracted to that kind of faith? That's dead, worthless faith, you know? And so, man, he's kind of hitting all these areas of life from our, our belief system to our actions to the words we use. And he's like, every piece of your life ought to be in congruency with each other. There should be this like syncing up of the way you think and the way you believe and the way you act and the way you speak. It should all kind of be in unison. And if it isn't, then that should be alarming to you. It should be a red flag that maybe there's something wrong with what I say is my faith. Maybe my faith doesn't actually work in the real life. Maybe my faith isn't actually growing me up. If you're 50 and your faith is no different than it was when you were 20, maybe you should take a hard look at your life and do some of the things James is saying to do. Put into practice some of the habits he's teaching us in this series. So today I want to kind of dive right into it and I want to start you with a verse that wouldn't be the kind of verse you're going to like pull out if you're at somebody's bedside in the hospital, okay? Or if somebody's like looking for comfort, you know, or, or you're like at a funeral, you know, and you're given like the eulogy or you're uh, sharing from God's word at a funeral. But James chapter four, the beginning of verse four, this is what he says to his Christian audience. You ready? He says, you adulteresses. That doesn't sell well at the funeral home. You might want to keep that one like tucked away for another day if you're the preacher at a funeral. Bunch of adulteresses. And, and I wonder, like, that's just the beginning of the verse. We'll get to the rest of it. But I stopped at that part and I thought, and, and I thought to myself, like, could I say that to you? Like, could I pastor that way today? Like James pastored back then? Could I write a letter to people in our church and start it off with, like, you adulterer, you adulteress, what are you doing? I got to tell you, like, there are a lot of times I feel like that. I feel like writing some of the people in our church a letter. I feel like sending them a text. And, and I don't always want to say, like, you adulterer or adulteress. Sometimes I just want to be like, you idiot. You fool. You know, Stephanie's like, words of death, words of death. <laughs> so, but I feel like that a lot. But I wonder, like, would I have the freedom as a pastor today to speak to Christians like James did? 
in this letter. Would anybody in your life have the freedom to speak to you that way? A friend, a family member? What about Jesus himself? Like, could he call you out on stuff you were doing that was wrong? Or, or if they did, if anybody did, your feelings would be so hurt and so offended that you'd just leave? I'll find another church where they just make me feel good. I'll go back to my house. I don't need this. I don't have to put up with this. I'm a grown man. I'm an adult. I'm, this is stupid. I'm not going anymore. I'm not going to listen to this garbage. Man, the culture has like shifted so much in the last couple thousand years. I don't know that you could get away with this. Some churches maybe where like they, they got you like under oppression. They got you in the grip of guilt, you know, like not the grip of grace, but the grip of guilt. And maybe they could say this to you and kind of get away with it because you're terrified to leave or they tell you you're going to hell or something. I don't know. But it, I mean, it feels like in our church culture today, you couldn't hardly confront people on this stuff. And, you know, you can kind of stand up front. I've learned this over the years. Like, you can kind of stand up front and say almost anything you want to everybody. You can kind of preach almost anything from the Bible and any topic and, and address any labels or difficulties or struggles or sins people are committing. But, man, you go to somebody one-on-one, -on -one, you write them a letter and send it to them or an email or shoot them a text, and you say something like this, they're blocking you. They don't want to hear that anymore. And I just wanted to throw that out because I think it's like so revealing of my heart, like how I don't want to be confronted on the stuff I mess up. I just want to be patted on the back. But so often when we look into God's word, I need the kick in the pants. I don't always just need the encouragement. Sometimes I need the challenge. I don't always just need the, the kind words. Sometimes I need the hard words. And that's really what James is going to say to us today. So if you've got to lift your feet off the ground, if it gets a little deep in here, or put on some rain boots, whatever you've got to do. But I'm just telling you, chapter 4 in James is kind of written aggressively. Like he's calling us out. And he starts this off, we're going to look at I know you're thinking like, what about verses 1 and 3? Don't look back at verses 1 and 3 yet, okay? Just hang with me for a second. We're going to do the rest of the chapter first. Then we're going to come back to the beginning of it. And the reason I'm going to do that is because James is going to set off to give us three separate warnings. I'm going to read you all three of those warnings, show them to you. We'll talk about them a little bit. And then at the beginning of the chapter, he tells us why you, want, why you need these warnings, why you need to avoid these three things, because they're going to lead to something. He's going to reveal it first. I'm going to show it to you at the end. I'm going to flip it around on us. But I want to show you all three of these warnings and then I want to ask you today, like, are you guilty of doing any of these three things that James warns us will lead to something super awful, super negative, super difficult in our life? I'll read you what that is at the end. But are you guilty of disobeying God in any of these three areas, of taking this warning, throwing it out, and still doing whatever you feel like doing along the way. So let me give them to you. Here's the first one. The first one is the warning against our pride. Now that sounds like a church thing you'd say, so that, that makes sense, I guess, but it's a warning against our pride. Let me read it to you. It's in chapter 4, verses 4 to 10. And let me read it to you. Here's what he says. You adulteresses, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? That's also strong language. 
Friendship with the world, doing the things that the world would tell you to do. Now, in the world, he doesn't mean like the actual physical earth. He's talking about like the system of the world, like, like the way the world lives or operates, the way the people in the world, it's like a, a system of operating, right? And he said like living that way, making them your friend, making that your confidant in life, making that the way you approach your day each day, makes you not just indifferent to God, not just distant from God, not just somebody who's sliding backwards a little bit or taking two steps back for every one step forward. No, it makes you God's enemy. That's strong language. He's going to actually say it again. Like in case you missed it, he just called you an adulterer or an adulteress. Then he called you God's enemy. He's talking to Christians right? And then he's going to say it again. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Verse 5, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. In other words, you think God was joking? Like when he told us that he expects us to do what he says? Like, do you think God's joking when he expects us to obey him and be faithful to him? And not do the things the world is doing, not follow the patterns or behaviors or customs of the world? Do you think he was joking about that stuff? Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? Do you think he's just messing with you? Verse 6. And he gives grace generously. I love that part. Man, if that part wasn't in there, we'd, we'd be in trouble. He gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, I think verse 34, you can look that up later if you want. And Peter quotes it also in 1 Peter. He gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's not like God's sitting up in heaven watching you buck against the system, watching you befriend the world and ignore him, watching you do whatever you feel like doing. And he's just like, that's no biggie. I wish they wouldn't do that, but like, I really love them. No, he's actually opposing you. He stands opposed to you and your lifestyle. But he gives grace to the humble. Here's this idea of pride kind of filtering into the text where James kind of presents these two opposite sides. There's the humble and the proud. There's the person who does it God's way and the person who does it the world's way. There's the person who is the friend of God and the person who is the friend of the world. There's the person who is the enemy of God. Or there's the person who is the enemy of the world. It's, it's one or the other. You can't have both. And then verse 7 and 8, he busts into this like super cool process for how we could fight back against the pride in our life. And he says, so submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty. And here's this dichotomy again. Here's this separation of one or the other. He says, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Verse 9 and 10, he says what our response to that should be. He says, so let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of sorrow instead of deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. Let there be gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. If you're a note taker or an underliner, just in verse 10, underline, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord. So here's his first warning again. It was the warning against our pride. Now, 
you can't necessarily get this from this text. It's just my theory. I don't even know if I can prove this from the Bible. But I think that all sin comes back to the sin of pride. Okay? Because the sin of pride is when I decide that what I want or what I think is more important than what God thinks. Okay? Now, sometimes that manifests or it shows itself in the way I interact with other people. What I want or what I think becomes more important than what other people think or what other people want or what other people need or feel, right? And that can be pride too. But ultimately, whether I'm not loving God or I'm not loving people, I'm still disobeying what Jesus said is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor like you love yourself is just like it, he said. So pride creeps into my life, and pride is when I say, whatever I want, whatever I desire, whatever I'm going after, becomes more important than anything God wants or says to me. I, I am going to steal a chair just for a second, if that's okay. I'll take this one because I see you're using that one, Ricky. I saw that. all right. Yeah, okay. So I brought this chair. Now imagine this chair is the throne of your life, okay? I know it doesn't really look like a throne, but... It's hard, it's hard to get a throne in here or like mobile church, you know? So, but imagine this chair is like the throne of your life. And everybody comes to Jesus sitting on this throne. Like when you come to church for the first time or you open up and read your Bible for the first time or somebody's sharing with you about the faith for the first time, everybody is sitting on the throne of their life. And, and so you're confronted with the good news about Jesus where he, he sees how messed up we are, but he's willing to die in our place. Even though we deserve to be punished with death, he's willing to die for us, take all of our sin, all of our consequences, all of our deserved payment and punishment on himself, and then defeat all of that by rising from the dead. And then he looks at us and he says, hey, if you will follow me, I will save you and give you eternal life. It'll start right this second. It'll be full of peace. It'll be full of power over sin in your life. It'll, it'll be not just a better eternity. It'll be a better life right now. And the only real question along the way is like, will you get off the throne and let Jesus sit there? That, that's really the question. That's what I'm confronted with, will I humble myself instead of being the king of my life? Will I humble myself and say to Jesus, you sit on the throne and now you be the king of my life. I'm still going to mess up, but he gives grace generously. Did you read that in there? Did you see that with me? I'm still going to make mistakes, but if I stay humble, he's going to give me grace. Now, if I stay proud... If I'm like, Jesus, you can be part of my life and I'll go to church and I'll listen to some sermons and I like some of the things you have to say and you seem like a good guy all the time, but I'm still going to call the shots, then God is going to oppose me because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You, you get that? And so that's what's going on here. James is warning us against this kind of pride. You can become a friend of the world. Do whatever the world says to do. Believe everything everybody else is telling you. And you might have great reasons along the way to do that. You don't understand how strong I feel about this on the inside. You don't understand. Everybody's telling me it's the right thing to do. It's just one little disobedience to God. It's just one time. 
But that's pride. That's me saying to Jesus, get off the throne. I'm in charge of this part. I call the shots in this area. And James is warning us against that kind of pride and saying that what God actually expects from us is for us to obey him and be faithful. Do you think he was just kidding? When the Bible says God expects those he has put the Spirit inside of to be faithful and obey him? Do you hear what he's saying? No matter how I feel, no matter what they say, no matter what the system looks like around me, I have to humble myself and obey, or I can be proud and adopt the world's pattern of behavior. But I can't do both. That's warning number one. And then I, I kind of mentioned it, but in verses seven and eight, he gives us this like beautiful formula for how to battle pride in your life. I'll just give it to you real quick if you want to snap a picture of it or jot it down real quick. Here's what he says, verses seven and eight. He says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, get close to God, repent and confess your sins and pursue God's purity. That would be like an excellent blueprint to start your day with every day. Like get up every day and just be like, okay, today I'm going to submit to whatever God says to do. All right, I'm going to resist whatever the devil would tell me to do. I'm going to spend some time getting closer to the Lord. I'm going to confess, repent, or change my mind about the sinful things I've done. Kind of have the same attitude or thoughts that God has about them. I'm going to pursue the purity God lays out for me in his word. That's, that's a good blueprint for the day. But James lays that out in verses 7 and 8 is like, as if that's the... Man, instead of being a friend of the world, instead of loving the world, instead of being proud, follow this formula instead. That's his warning. Here's the second warning he gives us. It's a warning against judging others. Yikes. A warning against our judging others. This one's in verses 11 and 12. Let me read it to you, and then we'll flash it back up there and talk through it. He says, don't speak evil against each other. Some of you are like, I'm out, <laughs> I'm out. Dear brothers and sisters, if you criticize and judge each other, you are criticizing and judging God's law. We're going to come back to that. But your job is to obey the law. If you're a note taker or an underliner, underline that part. Your job is to obey the law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Yikes. We think things often like, this isn't right. It's my job to make it right. I think that all the time. This isn't fair. Why do they get away with living like that? And you're telling me I'm not supposed to live like that? It's not right, Lord. Why can't I have as much fun as they have? Why can't I be as wealthy as they are? Why is it not right for me to live that way, but they seem to get away with whatever they want to do? It's not fair. I don't like it. Seems like they all get away with everything. Seems like the world does whatever they want and there's no consequences for it. And I'm sick of it. And you get frustrated. And what James says, if those are your words, if those are your thoughts, then ultimately you're not really judging those people. You're criticizing and judging God's law. How dare you give grace to those people, God? They deserve judgment. Get them, Lord. 
I just want them to pay for what they've done to me. And he's saying, when you think like that, when you're busy criticizing everyone else, judging everybody else's motives and intentions and actions, you're really judging what God says, not them. How dare you, he says. What right do you think you have to judge God's law? He's the one that gets to judge the things he's written down. Doesn't look fair to you? Who asked your opinion? You think that person should get punished? If somebody just knocked them upside the head, they'd come around. You think it's your job to point that out? Or you think God's big enough to take care of his own judgment? And when we criticize and we judge other people like he's talking about in this passage, we're really criticizing God's word. That's what he said. God, your word's messed up. Those people don't deserve grace. You know how wicked they are? I mean, I deserve grace. You, you ever notice how like the grace line of like who deserves grace and who doesn't is always just on the other side of like what I do? You know, you know what I mean? It's like the only people that deserve the grace are the people that I deem to be as good or better than me. And then all the people who are as, like a little worse or way worse than me, those people should get judged and no grace. And James is like, when you do this, you're criticizing God's law. How dare you? Only he has the right to do that. And then he sums it up. He's like, that isn't your job. Your job is just to obey what God's law says, not to try and figure out if it applies to you or not, not to try and figure out if it applies to them or not, not to try and figure I know what God's word says, but man, this can't be right. And you supersede it, and somehow your opinion is way more important to you than what God says. James is warning us against that, the, the warning against judging others. I remember when I was growing up, somebody, I don't remember who it was, but somebody preaching a sermon one time, they said, when you became a Christian, when you decided to follow Jesus with your whole heart and you asked him to save you, and he did, and he transformed you into a brand new person, when that happened, what you were saying to God was, I give up all my rights if you're here today and you're a Christian and you're like, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus and I'm following him and I've asked him to save me, you have no rights. You've died to yourself, the Bible says. You no longer retain any rights. The only privileges you get are the ones that the master gives you. You are now a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I give up all of my rights and it's super hard because I don't want to turn the other cheek and I don't want to be kind to my enemies and I don't want to pray for those who are persecuting me. I don't want to forgive every time somebody does something against me. And one time Jesus' disciples were like, Lord, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times? And they're thinking like, yeah, seven times. I crushed this one because the law requires that I forgive up to seven times. And Jesus is like, seven times? No way. You forgive 70 times, seven times. You're like doing the math, 490, goodness, Lord, I can't. And the point there is supposed to be like infinity. You forgive every time because you don't have a right to hold a grudge. You don't have a right to mistreat. You don't have a right to get people back. You don't have a right to judge. You've given up your rights and you've left all the judgment to the Lord, all the criticism to him. All the getting even and making things right and fair, they're all in his court now. He's the one who gets to decide those things. 
He gives us a third warning. It's found in verses 13 to 16, and the warning is against our own plans. It's a warning against our own plans. Let me read it to you, and then we'll come back. He says, look here, verse 13, look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town, and we will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow, he says. Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. No, instead, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will. Underline that part. If the Lord wants us to, we will. If the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or do that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans. That's, a, that's another one of those things. I don't know if I could get away with saying to anybody in our room right now. Definitely not my wife. I'd be like in a fight if I said that to my wife. You're so pretentious. <laughs> Your own pretentious prance. And then all of that kind of boasting, he says, is not inconvenient, is not kind of disappointing to the Lord, is not like not best practice for those of you who are in like education or therapy. He's saying, no, that kind of boasting is evil. Man, in the last two weeks, he's hit us hard. He's like, you're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. Your actions are evil. You're the devil. It's like, you got faith like a demon. Like, he's hitting us hard on some of this stuff, you know? And so I ask you, who's in control of your life? Is it you? Are you so arrogant that you think you really have some kind of say-so over how long you're going to live? Over how successful you're going to be? You think there isn't a, a piece of the, of the puzzle, a component to the pie that's God's blessing on your life? That's God's allowance to let you breathe more? And so when you walk around with your, I got my plans, I got my dreams, I'm going to be here in five years, I'm going to make this happen. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and they had an assignment due for a class they're in, and they asked me if I'd look over it for them. And uh, it was about, like, handling their finances. And so, like, I, I listened to the thing, and I read through it and all that, and I uh, tried to be like super kind to him, but there was like not one mention in the assignment of the Lord. And dude's like, I'm a Christian. And I'm like, if you're a Christian, how are you talking for six minutes? How are you giving a speech? How are you writing out a paper that talks all about the best way to manage your money and God doesn't make it into the cut? You're so busy talking about your plans, and, and I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 60, and I'm, I got my 401k and my IRAs, and I'm investing wisely, and I set up my 403b, and I got my kids' 521 plan set for college. And you're like, you've crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, and you budget, and you save, and you invest, and you do everything. And you're like, yeah, look what I did. You're so arrogant. All that could be gone tomorrow. God could end you today. Instead, what you should say is like, you know what? If God keeps blessing me, I'll keep praising him for it. If God allows me to live another day, I'm going to give that day to him too. God lets me take a little bit more breath, I will leverage my finances for him. Anything other than that is evil, he says. Our own pretentious, our own plans, he calls them. We're supposed to be surrendered surrendered from our dreams, our hopes, and instead of that, we're supposed to be trying to fulfill God's plans and dreams. 
It might sound a little something like this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. You guys remember Jesus saying that in the garden? He didn't want to go to the cross and die. But he says to God the Father, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. When Jesus was teaching his closest followers how to pray, they said, teach us how to pray, Lord. And one of the things he said in that prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer now is he said, pray like this, your kingdom come. God, your will be done. On earth, in my life, in my world, let everything you want be done just like it's done in heaven. That's the way we're supposed to think. That's the way we're supposed to talk. That's the way we're supposed to be on the inside. Do you get it? Now, can you put all three of those up for a second? I got them all. They're already up there. These three warnings. Now, look at these just for a second because it's easy to sit in church and look at these three things and think like, well, I'm not very proud. I'm not judging others. You know, all that stuff. It's It's always easy to see the speck of dust in somebody else's eye and ignore the tree trunk sticking out of your own eye. It's kind of how... That's my modern version of how Jesus said that. But it's, like it's always easy to see somebody else's faults and struggles. And, it's, and we're always a little like horse with blinders on to our own situation. Can't really see what's going on around us. And so you look at these three warnings and, and you're like, well, well, why does he give us these three warnings? Like, is there anything that sums them all up? Is there a reason behind it? What's his thinking? And you have to look back to the beginning of the chapter to get it. I'm going to show it to you here in just a second. Go back to the very beginning of the chapter. Now remember, he's giving us these three warnings so we won't fall victim to what he describes at the beginning. Okay, now let me read you what he describes at the beginning. Here's what he says. Verse one, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Now maybe you're here and you think, I'm not very proud. I'm not judging others. I don't really have these plans that I'm beholden to. I, I want to do it God's way. Here's how you know if you're missing those warnings. You ready? Look at your life. Are you verses 1 to 3? What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? You're in a bunch of fights, always in a quarrel, always arguing. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? What evil desires? The ones he warned us about. The pride, the judgment, my own plans. Those are my evil desires he's talking about in this passage. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're like, I haven't killed anybody. Stay with me for a second. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Flashback to chapter 1. And even when you ask... You don't get it because your motives are all wrong. What are your motives? Here they are. You ready? You want only what will give you pleasure. He gives us these three warnings as indicators that we might have a life full of chaos and fighting and and squabbling and, and jealousy. A life that is unsatisfied, that we can't get what we want. So I ask you to look at your life, how much fighting is going on in your life, how much bitterness and unforgiveness is there in your heart, how much jealousy do you have about what other people do or have or get, how much constant quarreling are you going through with people around you, how unsatisfied are you with your own existence? These are indicators that you're not heeding these warnings James gave. Do you get it? 
And he says you're still left with what you want, even if you give it all you got and fight as hard as you can, even if you scheme and plot and backstab everybody and and try to manipulate, even if you do that, you still can't get what you want because you won't humble yourself and ask God for it. And even when you do ask God for it, you still don't get it because you ask with all the wrong motives. Somehow your motives seem to matter. Hmm. Why? Why don't I have what I want? James's answer, because your life is being controlled by your pride, your opinions, and your plans. Did you hear it in there? I mean, you can be a friend of the world, but you can't be a friend of the world and wonder why God's not blessing you. You, you can have your pride. You just can't have your pride and have God's blessing at the same time. You can have your opinions and make them known to everybody and pass judgment on everybody else's intentions and heart. Look at them as they're the biggest problem you face. You can do that. You just can't do that and be a friend of God at the same time. It's been said that you're never more like Jesus than when you're forgiving someone who's mistreated you. You can have your own plans and set your dreams, but as soon as they get in the way of God's plans and dreams, then you become the enemy of God. Your life gets thrown into chaos and you'll never be able to get the life you want. What's he saying? This is what he's saying. You ready? No matter how I feel or what I want, I must force my motives to line up with God's desires, God's laws, and God's plans. Instead of scheming and plotting to get all the things I crave, the things that will just give me pleasure. When I was growing up, I remember somebody telling this story. I'll do my best to kind of retell it. But they said, kind of a playoff uh, Revelation, uh, I can't remember, Revelation 3.20 maybe, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Some of you who grew up in church might be familiar with this verse. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door, I will come in and sup with them. It's in the King James, the only version I memorized as a kid. So, But I'll come in and fellowship with them. I'll come in and exchange a meal with them. I'll come in and hang with them. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door and invites me in, I'll come in and I'll spend time in communion with them. Right? And so there's this picture, there's this picture of Jesus like standing at the door of your heart, knocking. He's not going to bust the door down. He's just waiting, knocking, waiting to come in and give you grace, waiting to come in and fellowship with you and chill with you. And he's knocking on the door, waiting for you to open the door and invite him in. And so uh, you, you hear the knock one day, you know, maybe you're at a church service, maybe you're across the dinner table with a friend reading your Bible in your room, who knows, but you hear the knock. You're like, I wonder who that is. And you open the door and it's Jesus and you're pumped. You're like, it's good to see you, man. I, I didn't think you'd ever come to my house. And he wants to come in. And so you're like, yeah, come on in, Jesus. I love you. The house, a little messy. I didn't know you were coming, but come on in. And he comes in, and it's like, you're like, man, I'm so glad you're here. And you're jazzed up. And so you're like, Jesus, can I give you a tour of the house? And he's like, I'd love that. So you start to show him around. And there you are in your living room. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, Jesus. I've been like playing video games for the last three days straight because I'm a college guy, and that's what I do. So, so like there's, remote, there's controllers all over the place, and three days worth of clothes piled up on the floor and a couple pizza crusts laying on your coffee table. And, and Jesus is looking around. And in, uh, frankly, it's a little disgusting. 
I lived in an apartment like that right after I got out of college, so I understand. It is a little disgusting. You're a little afraid. There might be something living under your bed. And so Jesus is like looking around your living room, and he doesn't seem to judge you for it. He doesn't seem to even mind. He's just like taking in the scenes, right? But you feel a little embarrassed by it, and so you kind of quickly usher him to the next room, and you head out to your kitchen. You're like, well, I, I wasn't even in the kitchen in the last two days. Probably doesn't look that bad. And you show Jesus around the kitchen, and he looks around, and what does he see? Nothing but like a ton of junk food that you always tend to like gorge yourself on. Then he opens the fridge, and it's stocked with a bunch of liquor and beer, and he's like, and you're like, well, you're trying to defend yourself. You're like, Jesus, I don't even drink that really. That's for like guests, you know? I don't even really get wasted very often. I just keep that in there for an emergency, you know? And so again, you're kind of like, oh, I didn't even realize how messed up my house was. And you're a little ashamed and embarrassed. But Jesus doesn't even mention that stuff. He just kind of looks around, hangs with you. And then you take him to your bedroom. The bed hasn't been made for a year, Kenny. The bed hasn't been made for a year. You make your spouse do it all the time. Looks a little disheveled. And over in the corner, your wife's sitting crying. Now you're really embarrassed. You go over to her and you're like, Jesus is here. Can't you act right? Like, you know, like you do when we go to church, pretend like it's all good. She's over in the corner crying because you've been treating her like crap for the last four days. Now you're really embarrassed because now it's not just stuff on your floor. It's actually relationships falling apart. You're dating someone, your girlfriend or boyfriend, they're over in the corner half naked because you've been totally like stripping their purity away from them. You don't want Jesus to know it. You want that to be like a, a front that you're able to put on and be like, I don't do that stuff, Jesus. I, we, all we do is hold hands and talk about the Bible. So they're sitting in the corner like ashamed of how you've been like treating them, not, not treating them like you would treat a brother or sister, that's for sure, like the Bible says, but treating them like some kind of object. Jesus doesn't mention any of it. Show them around. You like start to head back out. You're like, Jesus, will you spend the whole day with me? He's like, yeah. And so you're thinking, maybe Jesus will want to play video games. Maybe he's into video games too. He's a guy, right? So I don't know, maybe he'd like that. And so you kind of head back towards the living room. And, and on the way back, like Jesus spots this closet door that you haven't been in yet. It's on the side and it's shut. And so Jesus starts walking over to the closet door and you see him going that way and you're like, oh no. And you remember there's a bunch of stuff in there that's like worse than all the other stuff you've already seen. And you don't want him to see any of that. So you jump in front of him. You're like, Jesus, there's nothing to see in that closet. That's just where I keep old stuff. And, you know, you don't, you don't need to go in there. But Jesus kind of insists and he keeps trying to walk towards the closet door. And finally, you put your hand up and put your hand on his chest and you stop him. You're like, no, 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 you, you can't go in there. I'm too embarrassed of the stuff that's in there. Too ashamed of that stuff. And so uh, Jesus doesn't force his way past you. Instead, he turns around and he walks to the door. And he goes out and sits down on the step on your porch. And you come outside and you're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Come on, back in. I thought we were going to chill all day. I showed you around the house. Now we can hang. You want to get something to eat? You want to play? And Jesus won't come back in. And he just looks at you and he says, like, I either get the whole house or I won't come in. When you invite me in, I either get control over all of it. I'll clean it all up for you. You don't have to clean any of it up. I'll pick up the clothes. I'll restore the relationships. I'll empty the fridge. I'll do all the work. But you got to give me access to all of it. I'm either Lord of all or I'm not Lord at all. 
You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of Jesus at the same time. He's standing at the door knocking, waiting to give you graciously an abundant amount of his love and kindness, waiting to clean up your life for you, not asking you to put away any of the clothes or fix the bed or do anything you have to do to make it right. He's just saying, invite me in and let me change everything. Let me sit on the throne and call the shots from here on out. And I'll fix all the problems. But you can't hold on to that closet. You can't hold on to that place. Like, those are the decisions I get to make. That's the dreams I have. Those are the people that I don't want to like. Those are the opinions I'm feeling really strong about. So I'm going to hang on to those. And yeah, I'll come to church and I'll read my Bible and I'll say amen, brother, and praise the Lord to everybody once in a while. But you don't get access to the deepest parts of me, Lord. I'm still going to be the king of those parts. See, Jesus doesn't demand a seat at your table. He's not looking for a spot on your board of directors. He doesn't want to come in and share a chair and a half with you and play video games. What he wants is to walk through the door and have you get your tail off the throne and invite him to sit on it instead. There's only room for one king on the throne. And it can be you or it can be Jesus. It just can't be both. That's what James is saying. You can have your pride and your opinion and your dreams and plans, or you can give them all up and come to Jesus with humility and say, it's not my job to figure out who gets grace and who doesn't. I'm just going to obey your laws. It's not my job to figure out what the next step is. I'm just going to do what you say to do. I'm going to spend my life trying to make your dreams come true, true Jesus. He wants to be your king. And there's only room in the kingdom for one king. He won't share it. He won't force himself onto it. And then James wraps up this whole chapter with verse 17. Super convicting for me. So he says, he says, remember it's sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. You know what he's saying? You got no more excuses now. You just sitting here for the last 40 minutes. You got no more excuses. You're not going to be able to claim ignorance. Someday we're going to stand in front of the real throne and he's going to want to know what we did with the grace he offered us. Did we accept it and invite it into our life? Or do we hold on to our own dreams? Do we hold on to our own opinions? Do we hold on to our own pride? Decide we have to get ours. We have to make ourselves happy and go with our heart. Or do we surrender all of that and invite him to sit on the throne? There won't be any more excuses. See, it turns out that the problem, most of the time, isn't them. It isn't them. It's almost always me. I just don't like it. I don't like to see it. It turns out most of the time, the problem is myself. And even when I'm doing the right things or saying the right things, even when I'm asking all the right questions, my motives are still wrong. And deep down, what I really want is to build my kingdom. Deep down, what I really want is more money, more sex, more indulgence. Deep down, what I really want is more comfort, more laziness, more fun. Deep down, that's what I really want. And that doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter who I convince. Jesus is looking through all of that. And he's like, I can see your motives. The reason you don't have what you want out of life 
You're not asking me for it. You're asking yourself. And even when you do ask me, you're trying to run a con. Like you can manipulate me into giving you what you want. Your motives are all wrong. I'll go to church, get everybody off my back, clean my act up a little bit, say all the right things, and they'll think I'm this goody-goody person now. And Jesus is like, I see right through that. Your motives are all wrong. What James is saying is your messed up motives are creating chaos around you with others and creating opposition inside of you between you and God. Do you get it? This is what he's saying. So I challenge you today, Three Strander. Maybe you're brand new. Maybe you've only been here a few times. Maybe you've been here a hundred times. I don't know. But I challenge you today to take a look at your life. You're like, how do you know if you're living your life based on your own pride, based on your own plans, based on your own opinions? You look at your life, James is saying, you got a lot of chaos, a lot of fighting and quarreling going on around you, a lot of wars happening. You're not picking up a gun, but man, you can't stand that person. A lot of bitterness and jealousy on the inside. You look at your life and it seems super unsatisfying. Can't seem to get where you want to get. No matter who you date or what degree you attain, no matter which job you switch to or what new car you buy, you're always still a little discontent in a month. James is saying that's the result of not heeding these three warnings. That's how you know. So instead, you go out and you submit yourself to God today. What does God say today? You almost never even need me to tell you. I've learned over the years, like, I almost never even need to preach about, like, what God actually says to do. Most of the people sitting here in this community, like, in a fairly religious kind of background community like ours, might be different if I was in, like, some third world country that never heard about Jesus. Most of the people around here, it's like, they know what the right thing is to do. They just don't want to do it. They want to do what they want to do. They want to sit on the throne. They want to be in charge. So I ask you, like, what does it look like for you to go out of here and submit some piece of your life to God you've been holding back? To get closer to him every day. To resist the devil's plan each day. What does it look like for you to go out of here and, and, and to stop being double-minded? To stop having your loyalties divided between God and the world. To stop living like a Christian on Sunday and however you want from Monday to Saturday. What does it look like to be a real follower of Jesus? What does it look like to have a faith that works and not a faith that's work, worthless? What does it look like to have living faith and not dead faith? This is what James is trying to teach us. He's trying to say, grow up. No more excuses. You're not going to be able to pull that list of excuses with God. You got that list of three I got? Let me just show you this. I want to take all the warning details out that I read to you. I just want to pull out a phrase from each of those three warnings. This is what he's saying to us. Ready? This is how we should live. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Your job is to obey the law. And if the Lord wants us to, we're going to do it. That should be how I live. Not, not like, man, I got to take care of me and look at what all those people are getting away with. And man, I got dreams and aspirations and goals in this life. I'm giving up all of that and I'm saying, no, Jesus, your way instead. I'll obey whatever you say. I want to do whatever you tell me to do. I'm just a slave. I'm just a dead man. I just obey whatever the master says. That's living faith. That's real faith. I wonder if you were to write a speech, a six-minute long speech about any subject in your life, I wonder if Jesus would make the cut. 
or if all your own plans would be in there. I wonder if Jesus came and knocked on the door of your heart today. Maybe he is right now. Being like, I want to come in. I want to clean it up and give you grace and forgiveness for everything. You don't have to do anything. I wonder if he was knocking on the door of your heart right now. If the response he would get from you would be like, come on in, you can have it all. Or if it'd be like, come on in, you can only have pieces of me. Only you know that. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you still knock on the doors of our heart. And I pray that right now you would embolden and give courage to the people in our room to invite you in, to have a conversation with you and maybe for the first time in their life, simply say, God, I've been holding pieces back and I don't want to do that anymore. From this day forward, you get to run the whole house. You get to sit on the throne. You get to be in charge of everything. From this day forward, I will follow you with all I have. And in exchange for that, he will save you. You won't be perfect. You'll still mess it up, but he'll still clean it up. You won't get it all right, but he will still generously lavish grace on you because that's what he does. Would you have that kind of a conversation with God today? Nobody's trying to con you. Nobody's trying to get you emotionally hyped up or trick you into coming down the aisle or any of that. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But today I just want you to have a heart-to-heart with God based on the truth you just heard from his word. Are you living based on your pride, your opinion, and your plans? Or are you surrendered to him completely where he gets to control every piece of your life, every room in your house, and gets to call every shot from the seat of the throne? You get to decide. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, we'd love to meet you face to face. We gather every Sunday, 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park building. We hope to see you soon.